We are recording. Hey, everybody. Um, it's with great pleasure that I am finally interviewing the prolific William Ramsey. Um, I was just telling him that he's a man after my own heart and that he, he does a lot of reading. He reads, uh, interviews a lot of authors and, you know, his wheelhouse of everything from true crime to the occult to the parapolitical. It's definitely something that's uh, a big part of resistance recovery. And I guess what I'd like to start with, William, is how did you come to do this? What, what was the spark of your interest in looking at things behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes pretty far back. I was always interested in good, you know, theories or people talking, you know, about bars or whatever kind of good stories. So I think I was willing to l- listen to, I had a susceptibility to listen to alternate views early. Then I went to D.C. I was in D.C. from 95 to 98. And I saw a completely different kind of world than what was being put out into the media. So I was kind of within the bubble of, uh, you know, the loop or whatever of D.C. And what what were you doing in D.C.? I was studying to be a lawyer for three years. Where were you? Uh, I was at a law school in D.C. No, I mean, what law school? I'd rather not say. Okay. Um, I just asked because I grew up there. I grew up on Capitol. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, no, I, I was in, uh, I had stayed in Northern Virginia most of the time. I was in Clarendon and Roslyn, but it was very easy to get to D.C. The Metro works really well, well there, so. Uh, yeah, just growing up there, I can say that you you very quickly realize that appearances are all smoke and mirrors. Even as a kid, you can tell. <laughs> and, and, and there's the old, you run into these old families and old sensibilities. I was from California. I was born in Nebraska. But you, I realized that the East Coast and some of these older families from Virginia, they operate and think a lot differently than maybe people in California do, where it's more of a melting pot. But it opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. Anyway, I worked briefly on the Vince Foster death, who was found at Fort Marcy Park. I worked for a lawyer and uh, delivered kind of the, which was eventually actually added onto by the district court in D.C., the D.C. district court, into the back of the Star Report. Uh, eventually oh, wow. so and I actually hand delivered those to all the congressmen all the senators so I'd been around my wife worked for a congressman so I you know I kind of saw DC I went to the Clinton inaugural in 96 and uh, so yeah so I was kind of just an outsider just be, uh, trying to figure it out but it opened my eyes to a lot of stuff so I'd discount a lot of corporate media from there so then you know, the internet kind of grew up and I was always researching and reading and followed a lot of stuff having to do with the Foster case. But that was, you know, just years working, worked as a lawyer and uh, was just kind of living my life. And I was really researching 9-11 at one certain point, 2004, I realized that 9-11 was not what they were telling us. And so that really sent me into kind of a long research. I was following a lot of researchers, writing different quality and character, but uh, I was definitely not following the corporate line. I thought the Bush administration was uh, a horror show is a nice way to put it, I guess. But um, so it was during that time that I kept seeing these numbers. There was a guy by the name of Captain May 
who unfortunately has passed away. He was a researcher, but he kept noticing those same numbers too, but didn't know what they meant. Why is the 11th so predominant in these oh, events? Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was really it. So like, why is this here? There's a, there's an over predominance of 11s going on. I, you know, I don't know what that is. So I just kept looking around and uh, just through reading, I kind of kind of came across a couple things where I saw this 93 associated with Crowley. And I said, why is Crowley, why is 93 Crowley's number? And so I was looking into Crowley and then it was just really obvious that 11 was a fixative point. So that really was like, okay, then who really is Crowley? I know what people are telling me about Crowley. I've listened to the song by Ozzy Osbourne called Mr. Crowley, but I just had a superficial notion. Well, I was really going to willing to read a lot of the biographies. There's a lot of biased biographies about Crowley out there. Um, uh, written by fellow travelers, people who admire Crowley. I'm definitely not. I'm on the opposite side of that. Right. So hagiography is really. Right. Much like his autobiography. Yeah. So, right. yeah. So, I mean, they leave a lot out too. What I realized once you go back and look through his original corpus, like what he wrote and put together, some of these biographies are, uh, you know, they're, they're occulting, an occultist actually is a, way, a good way, I think, to put it. So I read a lot of that stuff, and then that was kind of like opened my eyes when you look at 9-11 and the numerology, and even the numerology of the World Trade Center, and then that Crowley was really an elitist and a spy, and you kind of just see these overlapping kind of uh, ideas and numerology and kind of elite experiences that I think would have, was involved in 9-11, and that's what led me eventually to publish my first book, which was Prophet of Evil. Alistair Crowley, 9-11 in the New World Order, because I don't think people would have, they weren't really putting that together. People had heard about the New World Order, but at that time, I think that was kind of a novel. I, I, oh, I'm, I would be, wouldn't be surprised if you're the only researcher who got to Crowley from 9-11. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually interesting because I think that there's been, there's been more Crowley kind of researchers since I published my first book in 2010, it seems like, but I was kind of out there on my own there. Most of these other people were Crowley, you know, they're Thelemites. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's still Thelemites out there today. I actually was following one on Twitter with like 15,000 followers. So they're around that they're, they're actually still in kind of a growing movement or a kind of a religion. I don't think they, they, they have an expurgated spoonerized version mm-hmm. of Crowley provided to them. Uh, they probably missed a lot of the stuff that I put in my book. Um, but so that was really kind of, that was my first book. I actually was printing it out on a, on a printer. So I was, I've had a three ring wow. binder. Wow. I didn't. Yeah. So it was really kind of like, they're out there somewhere. Those first original cro- copies of Prophet of Evil are out there somewhere. So that was 2010 and, uh, really kind of, you know, I was really kind of, I pushed the book originally to publishers in the Christian community. I thought it was a Christian book and they they were trying to work me so bad. Like I, there, I always, I kind of like was shocked, like, Oh, you'll get uh, 5% of net or something. I'm like 5% of net. I can put this up on Amazon and get 70% of what I sell. So I really want that would kind of pro- started me on the self publishing route, which is less common maybe as it is now. It's actually was considered back then kind of like you couldn't get your book published, but I didn't yeah. see it like that way. I saw it like you are working your authors and that wasn't for me so i'm glad i did it too so i self-published that they used to have something called it wasn't it was uh something space 
so uh, Amazon bought it and absorbed it, but mm-hmm. it, w- it was, uh, I can't even remember the name of the company, but you could use that and get it out on Kindle and distribute it and get copies of the book. So that was my first book. And then I was researching my second book, what was intended to be Children of the Beast, which was going to show Crowley's influence. And as I was researching that, I came across a prosecutor um, interviewing a guy by the name of Damien Eccles, who was involved in the West Memphis Three murders. And that's kind of a famous true crime case. And uh, I was intrigued because I had I had seen Paradise Lost back in when it came out in like 94 or 95. And I just didn't think about it much. I just said, these guys are guilty. And I'd heard that there's this whole move to get them out. So I, that was another kind of thing where I had to unpeel this, like the Gordian knot. Like, what is what is the truth of the West Memphis Three? Because everybody was saying at that time they were innocent. And I'm saying, well, they were found guilty in court. Why do you keep saying they're innocent? Because they went through the legal process. And I've realized that at the beginning, there was a lot of problems in there. Obviously, there's still a lot. That, so I stopped writing Children of the Beast. And I wrote Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis three murders and Crowley, it really is involved in a lot of that. So during that video that I was telling you about, about the prosecutor, he had Crowley's magic and theory and practice on his desk, which I would never see in a court of law. Like, it was just, it's such an anomaly. I was right. like looking at that, they're going, what the hell is that doing on there? Turns out Eccles is a thelemite. He was associated. He was a member of the OTO in Arkansas and admitted one. You can actually look up this article. You can just type it into your search engine. It's called SK. 931 and it is a it is an oto uh letter that describes uh eccles and his Mm -hmm. thelemic and uh, what i learned to find and what i learned from crowley is a lot of these guys will cross in between different occult orders or just uh crew cult orders crowley said he had so many so many badges and and insignias and stuff that it would bury an elephant because he he joined everything as well Anyway, so that was the West Memphis Three book that came out 2012. That caught, they threatened to sue me. Uh, they took my book off of Amazon. I got it back on. Um, so that was a real. That was kind of like you know punching the hornet's nest. So then you know I, I kind of covered that. I interviewed a lot for that book, and then I published. I think a couple years later, Children of the Beast. That was my uh, second book, our third book, and uh, so that was you know, my first three books and then what else have I read? And then I've just published one last year, but then I did five documentaries. I did a couple really lousy documentaries back in 2010 that were an atrocity, really. One was called Occult Hollywood and the other one was called Prophet of Evil based upon my book. And then I upgraded those and they're on Vimeo. So I have five documentaries on Vimeo. And then I kind of got tracked into this whole smiley face killers phenomenon that was kind of made two documentaries on that. My smiley face killers phenomenon book uh, documentary was three and a half hours long. You can wow. see it on Amazon. Wow. And I thought that was another thing where it kind of like I had to unpeel, you know, peel back the onion to try to really figure what was going on. I thought it was a, uh, I thought it was kind of an urban myth. I remember hearing about it and the two guys who started it. And they were, <clears throat> was it Gilbertson and Gannon wrote a book called Case Studies in Forensic Drownings. But it was a much, I've, when I started reading it, I found it, it was a much broader event. I met a lot of researchers. The fortune one was a guy by the name of Jim Smith. So he was, I think, the director on that documentary when I put it out in 2017. And uh, 
had really good reviews from that. I mean, it was just, you know, it was a, it's a micro budgeted, uh, all my books are micro budgeted and micro budgeted documentary. But I think the fact comes across that there's a phenomenon of young men, college age men out at bars disappear. Oftentimes for a long period of time, some, some of them are gone for like 40 days. Uh, one comes to mind, his name is uh, Dakota James in Pittsburgh. So <clears throat> that was my documentary of 2017. And then I did a follow-up to that called Smiley Face Killers, The Global Slaughter Continues, because it was a globalized thing. It's happening in the UK, it's Europe. The English-speaking countries are far easier to figure out, but I found some in France, Mm -hmm. Netherlands, uh, very suspicious. And there are some in Europe. uh, What is it? Austria, Germany. So that was my second documentary. And then I did the three documentaries. I upgraded Profit of Evil. I upgraded to Cult Hollywood, and then I did a uh, documentary on Children of the Beast. And then I published that book last year called Global Death Cult, which uh, the sub- subtitle is Global Death Cult. Hey, nice. <laughs> Global Death Cult. Uh, some, uh, Order of Nine Angles, Adam Waffen and the Slaughter of the Innocent. So that was kind of like my entry into kind of right-wing occultism, farthest right-wing occultism in the underground. And then I really just updated that like about three months ago because so much has happened. There was a bust. There was an FBI informant. There was a murder in the UK. There were a lot of uh, court trials that had conclusions on some of these far-rightists that were online causing trouble with like Song and Krieg Division and Fewer Krieg. So... uh, and then I kind of write little articles. Like if you go to my website, you can see the little articles that I've done on a variety of different subjects. I'm on the West Memphis three. I wrote about Marlis Perry, some occult crimes and uh, just whatever kind of comes to mind. So, and then I did, and then I started my podcast. I worked for Ed Opperman as a producer for three years, the Opperman report. Mm-hmm. I had my first interview on, uh, was actually, I had her on just recently. Her name was Kareen Hutzabout on my YouTube channel. From 2016, I just had her on recently. She's a great guest, really fascinating, who knew a lot about pedophilia and the Dutro case. She she is in, um, she was in Belgium, in that part of Belgium. She she has like 20 books that should be published in, or should be translated in English, but they're all in Flemish or French or something like that. But anyway, the point is, is that like I started interviewing people for my YouTube channel. I was working for it at the same time. Then they stole my YouTube channel. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, Google did. I can't even get into it. Wow. And then I t- kind of transferred everything over and really started a podcast. So I took my interviews, took the audio off, and then started a podcast. And I kind of been working more on that. And it really was a vehicle to sell my books. Initially, that's really what it was. It was like, I can reach more people and sell advertising or let them know my books and videos are out. And so then it's kind of kind of grew. Like according to Listen Notes right now, I'm in the top 1% of podcasts in the world so there's a you know decent amount of people listening to it and i've had a lot of different authors like you said a lot of different authors things that were kind of pretty idiosyncratic things that i'm interested in espionage history Mm -hmm. uh, book writers Mm -hmm. i think that the writers of the books uh make great guests i find it more edifying and the subject matter is kind of condensed it's not like a conversational style where we talk about everything we just kind of talk about their books. I, you know, I just give underhanded pitches to them and uh, let them go. And I think that that's, and it's kind of an introduction to the book. So you've got somebody who's an expert on whatever they're talking about first person, hopefully. Sure. That's kind of what I've tried to emphasize on my 
podcast and that's titled William Ramsey investigates. And I, I kind of came up with that because I was so disappointed with other investigative journalists, either being corporatized or politicized. So mm-hmm. you almost mm-hmm. never hear the words liberal conservative uh, Democrat Republican on my interviews. Like I just don't want to talk on those terms at all. No, I really so. appreciate that about your work. Um, well, you know, as a listener, I just would like to note a couple of things is, you know, so I am, I'm 58 and I'm a product of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, you know, got acquainted with Crowley in a, at a young age. Um, and I read the book of the law and I read, you know, theory and practice and all that. And you would read those sections in the book of the law where he basically talks about, you know, child murder. And I, I can just remember that I was at a revulsion to it, but there was something in me that just let it slide. You know, I didn't explain in a way that it was a euphemism for something else. And it was because Crowley was such a, a countercultural icon. And, you know, Jimmy Page and Sergeant Peppers and on and on and on. And it, it's really remarkable that now, and I would say you're kind of leading the vanguard of this, there's a series of researchers who call him out and say, no, he actually <laughs> meant what he said. And, and then some. Um, and then the other thing that your work does that I think is just remarkable, I think uh, this was really evident listening to um, David Livingston, and that's a fantastic interview, by the way. Thank you. But um, that there are these these sort of right-wing occultism, and there's even sort of a, a right-wing financing and backing of much that passes for the new age. Right. And, and that is, you know, that's wild. And I think it really needs to come out. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, Look at the Bush family. They're right wing. They're supposedly in the Christian Republican Party and they are not Christians. So there's money coming from all things. But I think uh, Dave Livingston's Order of Kale really covers the kind of old money, bloodline, fat, literal fascism of the right and what they've been up to and how far it really goes back. I think it's his work is really fascinating. But uh, that was actually when I talked to him more recently, my old YouTube channel, which I can't get into our earlier interview about that book has like 10,000 listens. So that was like on that site, one of the most listened to interviews, but yeah. I well, think, and, the uh, thing, and the thing that he does that's so crazy. And, and I, I think uh, Jason Horsley does this too, is he shows how there's also at the same time, this sort of weird progressive line, so-called progressive in uh, eugenics and in the sexual revolution and that meets this kind of 1960s libertine ethos. And I find myself going, no wonder they called it the counterculture, right? They were, they were, they were being serious. You know, they are going to counter the culture. Yeah. It's about culture creation, Fabianism, slow, slow change. The sixties was not a slow change, but uh, what's really fascinating is how many of those guys are, have the money, you know, the Mellon family and, and like behind Leary, they have the money to really influence and want to change culture. What was the Horsley's book? Prisoner Infinity, How Occultism, Fabianism. Right. Shaped the, I forgot the full title of that, but I've interviewed him. Like, I mean, I've interviewed him about a lot of his books, but uh, 
I think that that's it. I mean, it's surprisingly, and I do think that like, uh, you know, it really is a pyramid where a lot of these secret families are puppeteering the left and the right. So I think that that's, that's kind of, that's evident. Yes. And that's like super disturbing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and then the culture creation. So like, think about the sixties, how many people are involved in that and that like the uh, fund for human ecology was a CIA front. So many CIA fronts in these big schools that, that were influenced. I think that Leary was an FBI agent or a, a contact. I think he said that he was a CIA agent now that I remember, because I covered him in depth in Children of the Beast because he thought he was carrying on Crowley's tradition sure of kind of sex and drugs. Yeah, so yeah. He, he was at um, Busada where Crowley was with Victor Newberg. He was there in Busada with a drug dealer. Babbitt, I forgot his name, Bobbitt. But uh, that's when he cruelly said, I mean, that's when Leary said, you know, we're, our lives are following the same path or whatever. There's some kind of weird mystical connection. And he actually had Crowley's I Ching cards and, and he was known to throw tarot. So that's not like one of the secret things about um, Leary. And he's this counterculture guy. There's really amusing, I mean, you want to talk about both sides. There's really amusing debates between Leary and William F. Buckley, right? They're like, I think there's one there. And you have Leary who loves Crowley. And you have a guy who's supposedly a Christian who was a member of Skull and Bones who was sitting in a tomb letting his brethren piss in his, his mouth, like literally, right? And they're talking and they're just talking for, you know, uh, right. this thing. And I, I'm pretty sure that Crowley's ideas somewhere, somehow have influence or infiltrated or there's a, a book of his somewhere in skull and bones like i think that they have a secret library so that wouldn't surprise me at all well yeah and then you've got things like um alfred kinsey's infatuation with crowley and the, and the whole the whole sexualization of children through you know these these researchers and then it becomes you know part of all sex education programs that prepubescent children are sexual. And, you know, these, these connections are so, um, they're so relevant and they're so immediate to what's going on in the world today. No doubt. It's still happening. And the normalization, and he was a super abusive, Kinsey was, but an important key was he was friends with, and it's such a strange connection with Kenneth Anger when he was young. And he and Anger went, what's that? When he was young. Yeah, when when Anger was young, and he and Anger went to the Abbey of Thelema in Sicily, and there's pictures of them together, and and it's remarkable. And uh, Kinsey coveted the diaries of Crowley. That's what he really wanted. Um, but uh, yeah, and it's really crazy because Anger, you can see the connection between Anger to the the Manson family through Bobby Bouzelay to the Stones to Led Zeppelin. Even though the son of John Lennon was hugely influenced by Kenneth Anger. Some of his videos, yeah, are exactly like Lucifer Rising with the advent at the very end. The alien arrival was what takes place after the ritual. Strangely enough, in Kenneth Anger's, uh, at the end of that ritual, he's taking little human um, figurines and drowning them. Really? Yep. Go watch watch, uh, Lucifer Rising again. Um, and how has, how has your work been received? 
I mean, I think I think I'm definitely was never a part of the corporate uh, regime or anything. I, I don't think I could ever have really published any of my material. And it's a very, I mean, Children of the Beast has like 750 footnotes. So I didn't like make anything up. But I think after my experience in 2010, I knew that my route was going to just be independent. Mm-hmm. So I think I had like some of my work. I mean, you can look at the stuff online on Amazon. Like I got a bunch of one stars from West Memphis three group groupies, but then some like, uh, like I can, I, there's a list. I should just read it into my podcast or broadcast of, of how many people thought my 2017 SFK documentary is excellent, but nobody, people like my research, nobody has ever said, wow, this, uh, the way you put the, this book together or your, um, you know, your, your ability to put a book, like I've what's the word? Like I, my, my skills as a documentarian or actual like book compiler are not great. So the writing is good, but I'm definitely, you know, I put it all together myself. All that artwork is mine. So it's, it's not come, come from like a professional uh, artist or anything like that. So, so you so don't I've, have, I've got a leopard. Yeah. What's that? You don't, have, you don't have people coming out of the woodwork attacking you. Oh, not physically, well, not physically, but I, you know, I get all kinds of attacks and stuff. Like I got threatened with, I get threatened with lawsuits, but I really think that my experience as a lawyer is, uh, uh, was very fortunate because you can kind of see through who's serious or not. Like I have people have threatened to sue me, but I said, all this stuff that I have is just, I didn't make anything up. I can Mm -hmm. show you where I read it. Mm -hmm. So I'm not just trying to malign people. I'm really just kind of a historical researcher. I don't think I, I don't have like these idiosyncratic flashes of, I'm just going to go make something up. These are just things that I found that, that are extant. So I just, yeah. I just figured you're probably stepping on a lot of toes. Oh, oh yeah. No, I mean, I think I had one, there was one where, uh, when I first, after the people I pissed up, there's a bunch of Crowley lovers who hate my guts. So there's this one guy who follows me around and gives me one star reviews. And then after I came out with the abomination, it was, it was blowing dust off of the whole, it was, it was uncovered. I think it uncovered the network occultism that's out there. And so I had one where like, I'm sorry, it's on short notice, but could you come meet us here tonight? It was like a total setup. I was like, no way. I'm not going to go to some place in LA. No way. So yeah. I mean, they're probably, yeah. So I mean, uh, you know, I, I lived in DC for three years, so I picked up some very curious lessons, you know, the police <laughs> seeing a lot of different things, if you know what I mean, you kind of learn, I mean, yeah, that, that place is crazy. Black, blackmail was real back then. People get, people get, we, yeah, it was bad. I mean, inside of DC, it's a huge power game. And, yeah, it is. Uh, and it, so, le- it leaves you wondering if the power structures of DC, Hollywood, and the corporate world are all running on sexual blackmail. Right. No, I, th- I think. Yeah, I think. I think for a long time, elements have, and I think that was the whole Karen Kareen Hutz about when I was talking to her recently. The whole everything that was happening there in Belgium was a lot of sexual blackmail of the total elite. So, and it, you don't really know which way it ran. Like, because they were just all involved. So they all 
were corrupted. And I think the same things happened here. I mean, it goes back to uh, whatever happened in Nebraska. What do they call that? The, uh, oh, the uh, Franklin scandal. Franklin scandal. So sure. that's the, yeah, that's the earlier one. And then yeah. the lawyer ran kind of his own. So, so Epstein and Maxwell are just the most recent iteration of uh, the pedophile scandal. They used to have like gay scandals, but now you can, you being gay isn't uh, right. you know, a career killer. So now it's right. just purely, yeah, you're trying to get somebody from pedophilia. Uh, Went from adultery to homosexuality right. to pedophilia. Right. Very much. A, adultery back in the day, that would, that would destroy your career. It really yeah. would. There was stories like the, it's hard to think about this today, today, but like the Kennedys were adulterers, but they didn't want it to come out because it would just destroy the whole Camelot image that they were sexual, uh, you know, all over the place. And so there's a lot of reasons why they didn't want information like that to come out. And, but today we just would think that's so quaint, like, Oh, you cheated on your wife. So what? Mm-hmm. But back then it was, a, it would have ruined Bobby's career and, and John, now we know that John Kennedy was like, yeah. Uh, what's the word? Uh, Sybaritical, liber- libertine. Right. Pre, pre, pre-apic. Pre-apic. Good word. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Very good. The, you know where I heard that word was a description of J. Paul Getty. So J. Oh, really? Paul Getty was a pre-apic character. Like he would get like 10 prostitutes, like crazy, like crazy stuff, like 10 prostitutes and just spend as much time as he could. Just like, ah, uh, there's, and that's, there was the, the head of the whole Getty clan was up and, there, and yeah. totally implicated in a lot of this elite deviance all over the place. Yeah. Tons of it. And there were stories, there was, a, I mean, I, you got to take everything with a grain of salt, but I think that uh, crazy days and nights is pretty reliable. And they, they told stories about J Paul Getty that are off the charts that he had a, basically a harem, like he could afford it. Yeah. So in this era that we are in moving into now where there's this growing suspicion of the elite, their designs, their machinations, and that suspicion seems to be beginning to go across the political spectrum. Do you think that that, that people are becoming more um, sophisticated about these, these topics, meaning that they're reading work like yours or Jason's or Livingston's more or, or, is the puzzle getting put together in a way that it hadn't before? I think so. I mean, that's a great question. I think that the internet has allowed people to compare notes kind of figuratively. Like, mm-hmm. you know what somebody else has written so you can build off that. Um, so I think that there is a very hardcore research community. Like that's one of the benefits of like kind of putting myself out there is I've met all these great guys who are just, you know, they're grinding it out. They're just researching everything. Like uh, John Brisson, we've read the documents. Like you, so you can see the Finders Cult was totally like McMartin, uh, which uh, actually I'm going to talk. I have a talk today. If you have time, listen in. I try to get it live. You can probably listen to it on Twitter. But we're going to talk about the witch hunt narrative by Ross Chait. But getting back to your question, I do think people are getting these secret things together: the secret agreements, the secret societies, the secret tendrils, the puppeteering that maybe they couldn't see before. So like the secret society networks are very real. And uh, so I think, I think people didn't, they just saw these and they're keeping it quiet. 
So mm-hmm. that's the whole thing about it being secret. So, but people are like, why are all these people from Yale? Why are all these, you know, what's going on with this? And so I think, I think the answer is yes. And I think it, it's just a research community, like they're building and building and building. So like an exemplar would be the Kennedy assassination, right? November 22nd, was it 1963? But people built and learned from researchers of Mark Lane and then Salandry and all these other characters. And now today, people who really want to know can get a pretty accurate picture of what happened. And I think that in these other ones too, these pedophile networks and the uh, Brownstone, Compromot, you know, corruption and stuff. I think people are seeing more and more of that. And I think uh, people are fascinated. I mean, at least on my, you know, from my experience, like they really want to know about Epstein and Maxwell, really what, really what's behind them. Right. I think I, I sense that in my show. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that there's also increasing sophistication about the misinformation that's spread through all this stuff? I think so. I think that people are doing a better job. And I think that, you know, you are, I mean, I think that, yeah, like I, I watched like, uh, not, uh, you know, nine 11 event and yeah. you could tell it was part, it was trying to be compromised. Like people were trying to get in there and spread dis and misinformation. Right. So I think that people are much more subtle to, I mean, they're, they're more sensitive to it. And they don't take every hook, but um, there's still there's still people out there. I mean, I don't want to tell the names, but there's people in the alternate community who are clearly infiltrators. They're not uh, they're not kind of independent, kind of objective researchers. So yeah, gotta would, really be careful. Yeah, I would argue there's some of the larger names too. Um, well, I mean, you got to be careful about saying those, but yeah, I mean, I have my suspicions as well. I mean. You but don't I mean, know who. Look, do you know how much the FBI spends on um, on informants per year in the United States? Do you want to take a guess? Two point five billion dollars. <laughs> it's it's huge. It's I mean it's like that. It's really five hundred million, but that's still you can buy. Yeah, a that's lot, a lot of money. A lot yeah. of money. And I mean, a lot of these people would sell themselves people out for nothing. So that's just one example of the payment. You know, you don't know what's going on, but I you. You look at what happened January 6th, a lot of those guys were were informants. A lot of those heads of the right-wing thing. Oh, yeah, and that was just such bad theater. I yeah, mean, how it was. So what I noticed was, like, when 9-11 happened, it took me, I think, about a calendar year before I even really questioned, you know, box cutters and buildings, W, you know, building seven, but when this recent thing that I'm not going to mention the name of it for YouTube's sake happened, I didn't buy it for a day. And I, and I don't think, you know, I'm some whiz-bang researcher. I just believe that the, the level of cynicism and doubt that is in the body politic now, a lot of people just don't. We just, it's, like, it's like we're reading Pravda in Moscow in 1987 or something. Right. <laughs> It's incredible. I mean, it's incredible that Trump, you know what Trump called his social media site? Truth. Like, wow, do you not know history, man? What's going on with that? I wouldn't touch that with a 40-foot pole. But yeah, I think there, I mean, I was naive about 9-11 too. I probably didn't start questioning it until 2003 or four. But when, you know, there was just things that I should have picked up like, okay, everybody get back to work. You know, we had this terrible event. Like, I should have just gone, what the hell are you saying then? Um, but 
I think that there's how many people didn't take the shot? A lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's like uh, almost uh, what's it, sixty or fifty percent? I think I, I had something. The test said that I had what they say you have, but I never got some uh, card that says I have natural immunity to get all of us to herd immunity. And that should tell you everything you need to know about this event. It's totally structured and fake. So, scripted. Yeah, yeah, scripted. yeah, no, there's a good book. Uh, I wish I could remember it offhand, but it was uh, really about how far this goes back. It didn't come out of uh, the ether. It didn't come out of nowhere. It was worked on and people were thinking about it. All well, did, did you interview Ed Haslam? Was that you at one point? The guy who wrote... Uh, Mary's a monkey. No, I should. I would like to interview him, though. Well, you know, I read that just a little while ago. Um, and what was wild about it is it goes to 1960. It takes you to these research, not big research universities, places like Tulane. And they are researching cancer. And they are taking these tumors from rats and mice. And they're grinding them up. And then they're hitting them with a particle collider or particle anyway it has it's one of those things and it has a lot of industrial uses i learned all that in the book and then they would take the irradiated tumors and they would inject them in monkeys to see if they cause cancer so it sounds like you know they're trying to weaponize cancer what have you and fairy and all these characters are in the book but what's so wild what is so trippy is 1980 with the aids epidemic Anthony Fauci tells us it came from monkeys, you know? So how far back does this narrative really go? (laughs) I don't know. It's yeah. You don't know what's coming out of the deep state. I don't know. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty scary. Like he, he, yeah, it's, uh, these, yeah, there, I mean, I'm just not, I'm just, not impressed by these people at all. I don't, they're not where I don't think a lot of those people are really working for the interests of the American people, which is really against the purpose of why they're supposed to be working in those positions. No, so that's, that's so true. Um, any new research coming along? Anything? Well, I, you know, I've just kind of been putting things together. I just, uh, I've got some things on the horizon. Um, just kind of working on the podcast broadcast, but, uh, I definitely have some things that I'm trying to finish and get out, get done and, you know, send out. So, you know, I usually, I've learned not to, to really uh, telegraph my, anything that I do for a variety of reasons. People will rip off your ideas, man. There's no question about it. There's a book by, I think that publisher was uh trying day of the book you were talking about, Mayor's Monkey, right? Mm-hmm. And they put out a book after mine, after I put out, prophet of evil called the most dangerous book whatever that strangely has a lot of my research in like or if not most of my research from prophet of evil in there but they took out a lot of stuff and and, uh yeah it was it's 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 pretty in my opinion pretty ugly so gotta really watch out and when you uh your interest in crime seems to always be weaving back to these other themes was that um Was, is that by design in a way? I think it really came because people wanted to talk about it. I think that there was something like it was the landing report that says there's no occult motivated crimes. 
when was that? Total, what's that? When was that? The landing report? Oh, he's actually well-respected from the FBI, but I can't remember when he published it, but I did an interview with Ken and me about the landing report. We criticized it. But I think that that's complete nonsense because there's so many occult-influenced crimes out there that the landing report, he, I think, is just the crux of his argument is that there really aren't anything occultism associated with crime. It's a cover for pedophilia rings or something like that. I have to go back and reread that. But so a lot of my stuff about the occult was really kind of trying to expose it, you know? So I, I know think that's what that, that, that sounds almost like Jay Edgar saying there was no organized crime in America. Right. That right. I mean, there's so much occultism out, like almost every uh, music video or a lot of these musicians are into the occult. Mm. A lot of these politicians are. Um, so it's kind of silly to to tell you it's not when you can see it in front of your face. So, I, you know, that's I, I think that that's really kind of why I wrote those books is really to counter these fake narratives like you know these yeah well, I, I gotta admit you know the west memphis three the movie i mean that thing took me hook line and sinker and i you know i kind of would read up on damien eccles while he was in prison he was doing that thing that you said he was getting involved with zen buddhism and catholic mysticism and then when i read uh well i followed a bunch of your interviews on it i i had to really look at you know, one of these funny things is I'm beginning to think that spiritual growth now has to have something to do with deprogramming yourself. <laughs> so you really, at some point, you have to say, man, I'm as much of a sucker as the next guy. And to the extent that I think I'm not a sucker, they've got me, you know. Interesting, and, yeah. Yeah, and your, your, your West Memphis Free stuff couldn't have been more like that. I mean, it preyed on a certain kind of sympathy um, uh, a well-meaning sympathy for these poor, you know, redneck kids in Arkansas get framed by these lazy, corrupt cops and DAs, and and then they enjoy the support of the Johnny Depp's of the world. And what could be, what could smell bad here? Right. And, it's a good story. I mean, the PR guys put up put together a good story. You can't blame. Them. I mean, I was one of the most naive persons on earth up until 25. I did what I was told. I went and got educated according to the the paradigm that you're supposed to. And I had to really re-educate myself. It's really kind of odd, but something happened where you had to go, I had to go back and kind of reprocess everything I learned. And a lot of it was baloney, you know, just a lot of the old, the stuff that you're getting in high school and the stuff I missed. But so I, I wish I could say like, I'm 53. So I wish I could say like, I didn't have that, you know, this is S, this is Shinola talk. I had yeah. to kind of learn it myself, but there's a lot of S out there. And uh, did this, I without, I don't want to get too personal or anything, but did this cost you personally when you went, when suddenly you went from being the guy who was sort of playing by the rule book to questioning 9-11? Did the people? I think, so. I think it cost me going, just working under the whole Vince Foster thing. That's really where it started. It didn't start. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I, my life would have been a lot different if I had just stayed away from that whole thing and not really read about it or hung out. Like I used to hang out with Patrick Knowlton, who was at the park, John Clark, these guys, like it gave me a whole different outlook. I've done a lot of interviews with guys around like Dave Martin and um, Hugh Turley. I've done a lot of stuff about that. And I talk about it, but that's really where it started because 
I mean, that was that was an incredible case, and that was I mean, it was all over the news if you remember. Right? During yeah, that time. I do. And uh, yeah. but was it on, in Capitol Hill in the bars and such? Were everybody talking about the the inside scoop? Yeah, I mean, people know we used to joke about the next death, the next person who was going to be found suicided, jumping off a bridge, finding dead, you know, there were a lot more deaths in DC during that time that just weren't reported. There are people getting greased one, you know, two or three a year. And uh, yeah, so people knew we were in the law school. We knew we joked about it. People just didn't talk about it. They knew it. It was kind of like you survive on that information. So people wanted to know, but they didn't really, you just kind of played the game. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's, yeah. I mean, there are stories you just don't, you don't want to get called a troublemaker. You know, that's kind of one of the things. If you go along with the program, everything's fine. You get, you earn your bones. Like Arlen Specter earned his bones. Kennedy. Yeah. So he was, (laughs) he was, he was fine for the rest of his life. Interesting story. When I was delivering all that stuff, the addendum to the star report, I went into Arlen Specter's office and what, and I went to all their offices. So you kind of just see what these guys, how they operate. Arlen Specter had this kind of like brag picture framed things with all the famous people he was a fr- friends of, but they were smaller and they went almost all the way down to the floor, like behind the chairs. Like he could not put up enough pictures of himself with famous people. There wasn't enough wall space. So it was off the charts. Like you just saw that vanity there, of that element of vanity. And uh, he was one of those people who just went with the story. So he was, he was the establishment just probably rubber stamped his career from right there. Done. Get up there, get, go go to the car and tell us, tell the single bullet theory for everybody. You're done. So I didn't go that route. So that was, uh, I think that, I think that, you know, in a lot of what I didn't lose my integrity, but I definitely lost opportunities and things like that. If you get along to go along, it's a lot easier in the world. I mean, it is, but it almost seems like they block integrity out. I mean, I work in an industry I work in, I've been in substance abuse for years and we're at, there's so much money in that industry now that, you know, you're having the big fish swallow the small, it's the corporatization of the industry. Wow. Amazing. And what you see is something not unlike Hollywood or um, fraternities where the people at the top really engage in highly unethical behavior. And now, cause you and I were at the party together, we got the goods on each other. And therefore the person with integrity is actually, he's not going to get invited to the boardroom. He's a liability. Right. You know, he's I, a danger. He's a threat. Yeah. And I'm really a threat want- of exposing us, right? Yeah. That be, yeah. yeah. That's actually not that uncommon in a lot of uh, corporate environments. A lot of different, you know, the farther you get up, there's a weird, like, we're running this and the outsider can't get in. So the guy who wants to change this whole system or do the right thing is working against my interest. Mm-hmm. Isn't that what, isn't that a definition of DC? Like yeah. the public who wants to come in and change it is really a threat to those people. Life or death threat because they mm. can't continue with their corruption. Like mm. I want term limits. Like mm. what is it? 85% of the country wants term limits. Nobody in those old geezers <laughs> like Biden, 81 million votes, you know? Yeah. What, what did, how, do you know how many votes uh, Obama got in the 2012 election? I don't. 65 million. Do you know how many Biden got in the 2020 election? How many? 
81 million. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. You go with the program. Those people who went with the program, they're all in those high kind of, you know, at the top of these administrative bodies, huge bodies. They don't complain. Have you seen anybody from Washington really? I mean, maybe people who lost, but the other guys, oh, yeah. This oh, yeah. is all above board, baby. 81 million. He's much more popular than Obama. Probably one of the most popular presidents in our lifetimes. Well, that leaves us with this kind of thing about, you know, the role of the media and all this. Um, yeah. And I, I find myself wondering a lot now, podcasts like your own and similar podcasts and all this sort of alternative news, there's really no way of kind of calibrating the impact it's having because it's completely shut down by the MSM. So from where you sit, do you have a sense that, you know, I hate to use a term like awakening, but do you have a sense that something's rippling through the, the America that's, that is like an awakening? I think so. Something like that. I think they've re- I think that the corporate media has discredited itself so much and the people are getting something that's more edifying and satisfying from the alternate. And I think the example is really Joe Rogan broke the whole, the whole narrative with two interviews, that guy Malone and McCullough. Yeah. And those, those interviews were off the charts. I mean, it's unparalleled. Like if, a, if CNN got 50 million views on one of their shows, it would be, like they would have gotten every award on earth, right? Whatever right. award it was. But Joe Rogan had 50 million views to this Malone videos. That's what they tell me. He got nothing, but that's where people are going. They're right. going towards that alternate. They they want to be challenged. They want, I mean, like. And that would probably explain the success of your podcast. I, I think in part, no question. I think in part. I mean, I'm not even close to Ro. I mean, that guy is a. No, yeah, he's a colossus. He kind of hit the zeitgeist in a way that a lot of other research, you know, he, the the UFC, the age, the comedians, yeah, comedian hanging with Mike Tyson can talk psychedelics from experience. You know, he hits that. He hits it perfectly. Not like us old guys in our (laughs) fifties. I think that I think. Well, I think he's fifty-two. I mean, he ain't no. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he's that young. Um, He. have you ever heard do you know he kind of came up from with he was friends with Jan Irvin do you know who Jan Irvin is no I don't think so yeah it's uh Gnostic Media have you ever heard of Gnostic oh yeah yeah no I know about that yeah so they came up together but I mean that was in Jan is like a a psychonaut too and Joe Rogan is too right so I think they came but he I think Rogan learned from some of the mistakes that some of these other guys were making so he uh He's, he's, he's clever. He's very, I think, I think I have to give him credit. I've criticized him on certain stuff. He's had so many people on his show who are one degree of separation with Epstein and not asked him any questions. Oh, really? Yeah. He had Epstein's like chef. He had this guy who literally cooked for Epstein and Maxwell. He's talking to this guy's from my favorite steakhouse. Barry, I think was his name. This guy's from my favorite. What did they talk? Food? Yeah. They just talked about food. (laughs) <laughs> it's incredible. It would be like sitting across from like, I don't know, uh, 
Robert Maxwell or something and just talking about boating all day. Like, yeah. <laughs> just like, dude, this is so important. What was it like being with Epstein? What did he like to eat? Who did you see? Where did you go? Right. Nothing. Have you been to the island? What did you see? Yeah. How, who did he hang out with? Yeah. Nothing. So important. You, you signed some all, closure forms. Well, um, before we, it's interesting because that whole, I mean, you've got, you don't know much about the perpetrators, right? You have the victims, you've got Epstein and Maxwell, but who their clients were is uh, oh no, that's right. not overt. Yeah. And with the death of uh, Brunel, that's going to be even harder to find. Yeah. yeah, I would be sweating if I was Maxwell. If I was Ghislaine Maxwell, I'd be sweating every day. That 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 somebody wants that cleaned up. I can assure you. So one thing I was told. Let me tell you another funny story. Is uh, somebody told me this? I can't. I talked to a lot of people, but somebody told me that they had friends who were up in the hills of Hollywood, and they there were these two parties taking place. People were celebrating. And having fun. And then Epstein died, was found dead that morning. And he thought that he was going, he was going to these houses that they knew Epstein was going to be killed. And they were partying because in advance, because before the notification. Is that amazing? Yeah, that's really amazing. It's believable. It is amazing. I often wonder if he just had so much blackmail and intel that killing him would just be a sigh of relief for a lot of the Oh, no doubt and dude the there FBI, were tons of people the fbi came and took away the computers everywhere from paris to new mexico and there you mm-hmm. go well that that safe had pre-opened evidence so it had gone to the fbi and then had been returned that's mm-hmm. what that's what i think had happened and i mean just gates himself was heavily tied in with with epstein so mm-hmm. that was probably part of his divorce mm-hmm. so um he was probably very satisfied when uh, that news came through. I mean, I don't, you can't impute a lot of stuff to people. Like I don't have the evidence, but there are, you're right. There are lots of people, thousands and thousands of people who sideways. There were very nervous men who were sitting at the table with their wives and kids with just sweat pulling, pouring down on their foreheads and their, you know, really it's like it's airplane, the movie. I hope my name never comes out <laughs> because they get divorced. The wife walks away with half the money and the kids are like, what are you doing, dad? Where yeah. were you hanging out on this plane for? There were so many people involved, man. There were so many people involved. So it was I'm, really the culture. Yeah. I'm expecting you get a lot of intel that you can never talk about. <laughs> I definitely have some. I definitely have some. I so one thing I'd like to touch on just out of appreciation before we're done is, um, one of your one of your best one of my favorite interviews was with uh, J. Michael Bennett, yeah, Doc Future, mm-hmm. and you know really unpacking the way a lot of these uh, these organizations use the church as a front and cover. And I I, um, I just I just feel like giving him an audience was the really the right thing to do. And, he got in a lot of heat from the Christian community for that, for criticizing them. Because Liberty University is a cash cow. And oh, the yeah. guy who runs that is not, he just says, says, I'm not a Christian. I think he came out and said, Did he really? Like he's not, yeah, he said something to that effect. I'm not a believer or something. And he was the guy with the pool boy. So Mike Bennett's critique would be right in line with the Lord Jesus Christ, 100%, because these guys uh, adhere to the letter of the law, you know, to my opinion. 
But yeah, he, I mean, and interestingly, he's one of the first persons who interviewed me when I came out with Prophet of Evil and I was a nobody. I had no experience. Yeah. So you can go back. I think I put it up on my website, 2010 interview. And that solidifies me in time that I wrote that book at that time because the preceding book was based on my research. But I got to give him credit, kudos for him for interviewing me because I was printing out my book on like a typewriter or something. It's really sad. I didn't know much, you know, I was, I didn't know what I was doing. But he was, he's intrepid. I mean, he'll call out Billy Graham with a business about um, the Reverend Moon writing a check to save Liberty University. That just blew the top of my head off. And, and then, you know, going after, um, you know, figures like um, Aldous Huxley and his relationship to Bill Wilson and all that. I mean, he's just, he's just doing it. So he really is. He's a great researcher. And he's also, he was in the movie about the uh, Georgia Guidestones too. You should check that out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cause he's also buddies with Steven Snyder. Yeah. Steven Snyder, Chris Pinto. Chris Pinto was a good director of really kind of uh, non corporatized documentaries, but yeah, he's been around. He's interviewed some interesting guys too. I think his whole repository of Dr. Future is somewhere online because I I downloaded my interview with him there. But well, yeah, though I'm proud of those interviews. Yeah, that book, what was the name of his book? It was Two, two, yeah, two Masters. Two Masters, Two Gospels. Two Masters, Two Gospels. And I think he's coming out with a second volume. Well, that's that's volume one anyway. So right. great research. Well, yeah. well, William, this has been great. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time. I hope um I hope your audience finds it a little interesting because uh, you're kind of the man behind the curtain a lot of times interviewing. So it is, uh, you know, it's nice to kind of flip it around. I'm usually the one, I was the one interviewed for like eight years. So I kind of learned certain things. So I just keep my mouth shut and let the guest talk. You know, <laughs> it works. It's simple I don't have to do that much. Yeah, well, I do yeah. try to be prepared to read the book, but. Um, yeah, and I really appreciate that too, because I hate listening to an interview when it becomes obvious that the interviewer knows nothing about it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and there's, I mean, the thing is, is that we've lost out. One of the reasons these books is like we've lost out on that deeper, and I think it's the corporate media has really shaped us in the television kind of deeper understanding. So a lot of my guests really know their subject well. So you're getting an expert or close to an expert on so many of the subjects. So it's so worthwhile if you can to just try to get those understands. The other thing it's like you're, you're made, I've made just as a host so many ties and connections that I never would have seen before. And just simple research, not like uncovering a lost document or a secret society document or something like that. Oh yeah. When you said to David Livingston, you're blowing my mind. I'm like, Oh shit. Then I better read this. That's good. His yeah. research is incredible. I mean, that's a great book. It's really, I mean, all of his books are excellent. Yeah. Was it the Illuminati 3000 years? I can't remember all the titles, but I think, I think that that's what I'm trying to do is try to get people back to, and I think that the technology has done it to us. So it's not just the TV. It's just being on your phone or, mm-hmm. you know, just small little snippets of information, even Twitter. Yeah. But Twitter you know, kinda, What's, what's interesting is I think the, the, the podcast is sort of the most intimate medium and more so than even the visual because you're, you're taking it in, it kind of frees you up with your imagination. And so what you're kind of doing, which is really interesting, is you're taking the, the Gutenberg guy, the guy who wrote the book, and you're bringing it into this new medium 
So you're sort of, you know, bringing them together. And the long form, you know, generally speaking, you're fairly long form. That really helps too. So it's kind of, it's kind of like binge listening or something. And that's the other thing about William. I don't know if you know this, but <laughs> William Ramsey investigates. You can binge listen. So if I'm driving five hours, I can just scroll, and that that's really yeah. wonderful. And I think, uh, I think, yeah, I think that that's that's kind of a cool thing is that it's always there, so you can reference it. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, especially if you're interviewing somebody from a few years before. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's still. Uh, then my intent is to keep those kind of evergreen. So I will use times and dates, but I've shied away with just being reactive to media events. I think a lot of other people do that is one reason why, but the other is because oftentimes they're not, they're one and done. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't, you only listen, you know, you can only listen to them within the first week and then you're like, why would I listen to it anymore? So I've kind of shaped my interviews kind of try to be referential, you know, permanently referential and i'm still cycling through some of the old ones too you know are you do you put out a certain amount of material a week or is it very long? i <clears throat> i don't have a set thing i just moved to spotify well a spotify company called uh megaphone so i left spreaker so that was interesting and now if they want certain advertisers will want you to drop things at a certain time so they know how their advertisement goes through so if that happens, I probably could do that. Like right now, I don't have, I'm not really that corporately, uh, you know, uh, structured to like have a corporation really go, oh, this is great. Maybe Audible or something like that. But uh, I don't, I don't have a set time. So I really, really is dependent upon whether my time, I can have the interview and then how many people want to interview. But as I've gotten bigger, more people say yes. Yeah. But the funny thing is, is that, some people think like I, I was just complaining about this on Twitter or on my social media. Some people think that I'm an occultist when I've been exposing occultists, occultists and occultism for like 12 years. So I'm like, what are you, what's going on? Like I've been railing against Crowley. I'm probably the biggest anti Crowley voice out there and people come across me and they look at the cover of my book and they go, Oh, yeah. for me i had a guy a sophisticated guy guy who wrote 15 books was telling me that like i'm like uh i'm a presbyterian i could go to church i don't know what the hell you're talking about like i'm gonna bleed from my ears like where have you been like and i think that that's kind of like in the environment that i'm in i'm totally in the alternate media i never tried to like go to a magazine or you know try to get into anything corporate i've never ever and the only thing was to try my first book mm-hmm. so I mean, some, some some people who are in that environment, they don't know squat about like what I've done. But there's hundred. I mean, my bod- podcast has 500 hours, but I have there's tons of other interviews out there in the ether, ether where I've interviewed that aren't on like they're on uh, Benny Eastwood or some of these other ones. They're just around. Mm-hmm. So anyway, well, sir, keep us a good work, and we will. Um, I will. I would like to do this again someday. Likewise, anytime. It's great to talk with you. Thank you. All right, take care. Let's stop this.